For I am not ashamed of the gospel. That is how the Apostle Paul began what most commentators, Bible scholars would tell you is, the, is the, like the thesis statement of the book of Romans. We're just going to read and study two verses today, Romans 1, 16 and 17. And not only are they the main idea of the gospel, or excuse me, of the, the book of Romans that we studied, started studying a few weeks ago, they're even more important than that. Most Bible scholars would tell you there's, there's a consensus here. These are, this is one of the most important and influential statements in all of Scripture. Here's one reason why these verses really, in, in a very real way, were, were part of the seed that, that sprouted into the Reformation. In the early 1500s, there was a Roman Catholic priest by the name of Martin Luther. And Martin Luther, he was a devout man. He loved God. But he had been taught over his entire life that his eternity, his eternal life, was dependent, yes, on his faith in Jesus Christ, but also on some certain things he had to do. And his performance in those things played a role in his eternity. One of those things was the confession of his sins to another priest. And Martin Luther, who had sort of a grasp of the holiness, the righteousness of God, knew how far short he fell of that. And so he was, he lived in a constant state of anguish about his own sin. And because he had always been taught, the way to get rid of that sin was not merely faith in Jesus Christ, but also things like confession. So Martin Luther, by all accounts, would spend hours and hours in confession, confessing, trying not to miss any sin. He would try to go through his life, and of course, anything he did that he shouldn't have done, he wanted to confess all those things, but he didn't stop there. Because he knew his bad thoughts were sins. And so he would try to go back through his life since his last hours long session in confession and try to drudge up every bad thought he had. And then he knew things of, of omission, things he should have done but didn't get around to doing. That might be sin or where his priorities were wrong. I thought this was more important, so I did this. Maybe God thought this other thing was more important, and I should have done that. And so he would pour through those things. It took so long, again, by all accounts, when the other priests would see Martin Luther headed toward confession, they would all scatter because nobody wanted to be the priest stuck on the other side of the little divider thingy for hours and hours and hours. And that's kind of a funny story, but it's very logical, given that belief. I mean, if, if your ability to confess your sin plays a role in your eternity, shouldn't everyone have been that concerned? And that was, that was Martin Luther's 
sort of existent. He was full of the shame of his sin, and he was full of fear that he would miss something, and that would have eternal consequences. And then, according to his own account, Martin Luther read these words, and something began to change and to click inside of him. If I turn this thing on, it will go advance. There we go. Here's what he read. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous shall live by faith. That's what began to plant within Martin Luther what would become the Reformation. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? It's God's power that saves people. Everyone, whoever believes. It's how God's righteousness is revealed. It's from faith to faith, and the righteous will live by faith. Paul wrote those words to a group of Christians in Rome that he had never met. If you think about it, in a way, it's kind of a weird thing for an apostle to say. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Of course you're not ashamed of the gospel. You're the apostle Paul. Doesn't that seem like a weird thing for the apostle Paul to say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel? Well, yeah. You've been handpicked and set apart for the gospel. You've dedicated your whole life to the gospel. Why did Paul feel the need to tell people he's not ashamed of the gospel? Paul's never met these folks. He's never been to Rome. I mentioned this a little bit last week. I think we can be confident as word reached Paul, hey, there are Christians in Rome. Word also reaches Paul, they're kind of sore you haven't been there to visit. And none of the other apostles apparently have been there to visit. And I think Here's the reasons why people in Rome are hearing that the Apostle Paul has never come to visit them in their church. Maybe it's because there are too many intellectuals in Rome. Maybe because it's the center, Rome is the center of philosophy in the Greco-Roman world. Maybe this message that Paul touts as he travels around won't hold water here in Rome. Maybe that plays in Jerusalem. Maybe it plays in Antioch. But maybe Paul doesn't want to bring that message to Rome. Because you can present the story that is the good news of Jesus Christ in a way where it sounds kind of loopy. The gospel. Part of what Paul traveled around telling people was there was this uneducated Jewish carpenter His name was Jesus, very regular name, very regular looking dude. He thought he was God. And he claimed to be the king of Israel. And he also claimed that apparently was a big deal. Now to a Roman, like Israel was a conquered people for hundreds of years before the Romans ever even took over. I mean, it's a third rate people 
from a third-rate part of the world. Who cares if he is the king of Israel? But apparently, not everyone in Israel thought he was the king of Israel because his own people convinced the Romans to execute him. But that was all part of the plan. And then this uneducated Jewish carpenter didn't stay dead. That's the story. Now, obviously, Paul would share it differently than that. But I think word around Rome is, you know why Paul doesn't come here? Because he's afraid to show up with that as his message. This, this message that slaves and senators are supposed to be brothers, equals, that's not going to play in Rome. It's too scary here. It's too intellectual here. There's too much power here. That's why Paul hasn't shown up. So Paul begins to write to the Romans. And we looked at last week, he said this to him. Don't, don't, in three different ways, he said, don't misunderstand. I want to come visit you. I long to come visit you. And I'm eager also, we read this last week, to preach the gospel right there in Rome. Paul's not scared to take the gospel to Rome. Do you know why? Because Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. At the very beginning of Christianity, everyone knew there would be people who were ashamed of the gospel. And there were. There still are. There are lots of reasons people get ashamed, Christians get ashamed of the gospel. Most simply, I'm ashamed of the gospel when I really don't want you to know what I believe because I think you might reject me if you know I believe in the gospel. That's being ashamed of the gospel. Or if I won't share with you the gospel because I think you might reject it and that will make me feel, but that's being ashamed of the gospel. There are other ways. There's a lot of people, a lot of Christians who think this, this ancient 2,000-year-old with roots far older than that that this ancient story can't hold up to our advanced, postmodern, intellectual thought that we have today. It's really easy to think, man, I can't tell. I can't really share or tell people that I believe this old stuff because, I mean, in this modern, postmodern day, we've got everything all figured out. People will laugh at me. You know, for the last 2,000 years, every single generation has thought they are the generation who has things figured out and they have advanced thought. And by two generations later, guess what? Everybody looks backwards and thinks those people are a bunch of idiots, right? <laughs> Do you know what they're going to say about us two generations from now? I can't believe how dumb those people were, right? It, our most advanced, think about our medical technology today that is it's fantastic. Two generations from now, it's going to seem like using leeches and bleeding folks. Right? But guess what will still be here? 
And guess what has been here for 2,000 years? The gospel of Jesus Christ has always been here. And it doesn't change. But we get ashamed of the gospel thinking, in this generation it won't hold up. People get ashamed of the gospel when they believe, you know, if we teach... If we teach this gospel that says people are saved just from a free gift from God because of their faith alone, if we really teach just that gospel of grace, people are going to go crazy. If we really teach people are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, that's what saves people. People will just sin like they've never sinned before. They think they have their ticket to heaven and nothing else matters. People will go nuts. So we can't just teach that we had better sprinkle in some behavior control. We better shame sin and sinners. That, my friends, is being ashamed of the gospel. It was Paul's most frequent fight in his letters. Now, on the other hand, the gospel was given so that people like us can have a relationship with the God of the universe. That's what it's for. That's its purpose. And it's easy to be ashamed of the gospel by claiming it allows and it endorses things it does not allow and it does not endorse. It's easy. I'm being ashamed of the gospel when I have to pretend God says the gospel gives me a, a license to behave in this way that God does not give me a license to behave. That's being ashamed of the gospel. So in this book, Paul's going to take the legalist to task, the legalist who thinks I can be more in God's eyes based on my behavior. God will accept me more than he accepts that person if I behave better than that person. Paul will tear that argument apart. Paul will also go after the, uh, the antinomian, the person who accepts a, a sort of licentious way of living. He thinks no, matter, it no longer matters how I live because of the gospel. That's not true. Paul's going to step on everyone's toes. He's going to offend everyone. He's going to take everyone to task. You know why? Because he's not ashamed of the gospel. Now, why is Paul not ashamed of the gospel? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. In these two little verses, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And then he, he gives four reasons why he's not ashamed of the gospel. So we're going to spend our time talking about this morning. Let's start with reason number one, shall we? Reason number one that Paul is not ashamed of the gospel could be stated something like this. Paul's not ashamed of the gospel because it is the only way God uses his power to save people. Is God powerful? It's not a hard question. A little audience participation here. Is God powerful? All right, thank you. Um, I'm not above begging. Uh, God's powerful. 
And, and God has pointed his power in ways we can see in, in different ways. The creation is the most obvious. God created everything out of nothing. God's power created all that. God's power also holds it together. Our, like, our planet seems so fragile, and in some ways it is. But it keeps going because God holds it together. Jesus Christ holds all things together. God sometimes has intervened in our world in miraculous ways. We see it in the pages of the scripture. We could probably share stories of times God has intervened miraculously. God's the only explanation. But I want to talk about two ways for a second that, that, that God has promised to point his power at people. The most common way God has promised to point his power at individuals is he will point his power at people in judgment, in condemnation. People who are disobedient, people who do not put God first, people who do not honor and glorify him with their lives, people who sin, people like you and people like me, God has promised he will judge, he will condemn, he will separate them from himself forever and ever. He's, that's all over in the Bible. Here's two places. In the book of Nahum, we read this. The Lord's a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance. He's filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes. He vents his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, but he's great in power. And how will he use that power? The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. Paul's going to go to great lengths in this book starting next week to let us know we're all part of the guilty. And there's a promise of God. God is not going to leave the guilty unpunished. But it's really easy to say, but yeah, but Pastor Matt, that's in the Old Testament. That's back when God was a crotchety old man of a God who was really cranky and grumpy and all about punishing the kids who wouldn't get off his lawn. That's kind of the God of the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Jesus is the peace-loving hippie God that doesn't judge, doesn't condemn, which is all fine and true until you like read the Bible, right? Jesus talked more about hell and eternal punishment than any single person in the Bible, and it's not close. Matthew chapter 25, here's just one place about people who are guilty or unrighteous. Jesus said this, these unrighteous folks will depart into eternal punishment and the righteous will go into eternal life. And again, Paul's going to let us know in the book of Romans, how many people are righteous? There's no one righteous, not even one. So, First way, God has promised to point his power at individuals who are guilty like us in judgment. And there's only one other, there's only one exception to that. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. You know why? It's the only way God can point his power at individual people in a way other than judgment and condemnation. It's the way God uses his power 
to save sinful people. That's why the first reason Paul's not ashamed of the gospel. It's our only hope. You know, in some ways, when God, it takes an incredible amount of power for God. And sometimes it's easy for us to think, oh yeah, God forgave me. Of course he did. It takes an incredible amount of power for God to take a sinful person, an unrighteous person like me, and turn him or her into a person who looks to his holy eyes as if they are righteous, spotless, perfect. In some ways, in many ways, that's the miracle of miracles as far as human beings go. You know, in the book of Luke, that's why Jesus said, every time that happens, the angels in heaven, like, lose their minds. They celebrate. They go crazy. They cheer. You know why? Because they know what the holiness of God looks and feels like. Holy angels that have never, ever sinned once in their entire existence, they fall down before the holiness of God. And they know what an abuse sin is, what an offense sin is to a holy God. And when they see the God, the holy God of the universe, take a sinful person and make her white as snow to himself, it never gets old to them. They celebrate and cheer every single time. It's amazing. It's a miracle. That's the first reason Paul is not ashamed of the gospel because it's the only way God can point his power at people in a way where they are saved or redeemed rather than judged and condemned. It's reason number one. Reason number two, Paul is not ashamed of the gospel is because the gospel is open to anyone. If I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation to anyone or everyone who believes. And Paul says to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Excuse me. One reason people get ashamed of the gospel is because they know not everyone's going to accept the gospel. Not everyone's even going to hear the gospel. And so it's, it's kind of easy to to think stuff like this, you know, I, I just don't think I can believe in a God who would send, some, send people to hell. I, I don't think I can believe in a God that would condemn and judge people who don't have a chance to hear. The gospel is exclusive. By the way, we will we'll talk about those issues as we walk through the book of Romans. But for now, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's open to everyone who believes. Yes, it is exclusive. The only way God's power is going to be pointed at, a, at an individual in a way that saves that individual is if that person believes in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the only way. It is exclusive. But that exclusive path is open to everyone. It's one reason why we support folks to go down to the jungle in South America so that more people hear the gospel. It's open to everyone. Why would I be ashamed, Paul says, of a message that's the only message that can save people and that message is open to everyone? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. 
That's reason number two. Reason number three, Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. Paul's not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. It shows God's righteousness to the earth. Now, this is a big one. There is so much theology packed into this little part of a verse where Paul says, for, for the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. I should probably preach for like a month on just this concept, but I'm going to preach for about 10 minutes on it. This is reason number three. Paul's not ashamed of the gospel, but I want to give you three ways the gospel does what Paul says it does here. The gospel reveals God's righteousness. It shows people the goodness, the righteousness, the rightness of God. Three ways. First, how does the gospel, this, the, Jesus going to the cross, dying for the sins of mankind, rising again, how does that show God's goodness, rightness, righteousness? First, the gospel is how God solves this little conundrum, this little riddle. How can God, on one hand, promise to condemn sinners and separate them from himself forever? God promised that. How can God make that promise and then save some at the same time? The gospel is how God can be righteous right, correct, and do both of those things. The gospel reveals God's righteousness in doing that. Okay, did God promise to judge, condemn sinners? So where you nod your head like this. We just read it in Nahum. Jesus said it in Matthew. He did. Now once God makes that promise, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Once God makes that promise, God can't just say, you know what? All right, never mind. Okay, you know what, Sam? Let's just, let's just forget about your sins. God can't do that. Why? What would that make God? It'd make him a liar. He didn't keep his word. He, just, he can't merely decide not to forgive sin. He also can't do something like this. Okay, Joey, I know, I know all your sins, but here's, here's five good things or 50 good things or a thousand good things. And if you do those good things, I'll pretend you didn't do all these bad things. He can't do that either because that's not what he promised. God promised eternal death as punishment for sin. He didn't promise community service as the punishment for sin, Right? So what's a good God to do if he has also promised to save some? Let's consider the cross of of Jesus Christ for a second. I've heard this argument against the cross being a good idea. I've heard it called cosmic child abuse. If Jesus was the innocent son of God, which I believe he was, The argument goes like this. How could could God be a good father and let his only innocent son be treated like that? That's abuse. And there's a little bit of 
validity in a weird way. Because if he was innocent and he got punished the way Jesus got punished, even though he'd never done anything wrong, that doesn't seem right, does it? How do you feel when you hear a story about someone who is innocent and they get punished anyway? How about, have you ever been innocent and gotten in trouble when you didn't do anything wrong? Should I ask your kids if they feel like that? J.D., why are you laughing right now in church? Um, So here's the only way this can be righteous. If Jesus was innocent, did he deserve to die on the cross? No. You ever heard this? The guilty person, that person, they're going to have to atone for what they did. You ever hear that saying? That person needs to atone for the wrong they have done. What was happening at the cross is called substitutionary atonement. Jesus, who was perfectly innocent, he'd never done one thing wrong. He'd, ever, he'd always done everything he should have done. And it was all done to glorify God. He was perfect. He was righteous. He was holy. He was punished, though, as if he were not. You know why? Because our sins were put on him. Substitutionary atonement. Elsewhere, in 2 Corinthians, Paul said it this way, God made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, made him to be sin on our behalf. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus had no sin of his own. God had him punished, though, because he put our sin, Peter said, in his body on the tree. And then God punished our sin in him. So here's how that reveals the righteousness of God. God promised punishment for sin, but he put our punishment on one who had no sin of his own. That way he could pour out the justice sin demanded. And then look at those who believe in Jesus and say there's no punishment left for you. So that's the first reason and the longest, the first way that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. It lets God keep his promises in both directions, to punish sin and to forgive sin. Second, the gospel reveals God's righteousness in that through the gospel, God's righteousness is the the, the fancy churchy word is imputed to us. Our sin was put on Jesus on the cross, imputed to Jesus on the cross. His righteousness is then imputed to those of us who believe, put on us. That is how one way the gospel reveals God's righteousness. The only way, it's called justification. Paul's going to talk a lot about it in the book of Romans, so I'm not going to camp on it too much. But the only way anyone will ever stand before God in judgment and survive that judgment is if they are justified, if they have the righteousness of Jesus Christ revealed to be on them. The gospel does that. It's called justification. Paul's going to explain it a lot in this book. And then the third way that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God is how is when we change as Christians. When someone comes to know, understand the gospel, 
to, and comes to know Jesus as their Savior, their Lord, their Rescuer. It creates a desire to be with the God who rescued me. When I come to understand my greatest need in all the world is to be with God, and on my own I can't be. But through Jesus, I am. I'm with God. That, that creates in me a desire to be with God. And the closer and the longer and the more intimately I am with God, weird things start to happen. Maybe my language changes. And maybe some long-standing habits I've had for a long time change or disappear. Or maybe I'm more generous. Maybe I'm less greedy. Maybe I'm more content. Maybe I'm more kind. Maybe I'm more gentle. Maybe I'm more loving. You know what's happening there? That is the righteousness of God being revealed through someone who is walking in relationship with him. And all that was the third reason why Paul's not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is the way God's goodness and rightness is displayed on earth. How could I be ashamed of that? Fourth reason that Paul's not ashamed of the gospel. is because it is its only requirement of people is faith. I'm going to read through these two verses again. And as I do, I want you to notice the most repeated concept is belief or faith. Listen. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's God's power for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's Paul's a figure of speech way of saying for everyone. Jews, Greeks, last week Paul included barbarians, all of us. To everyone who believes, for in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, and as it is written, but the righteous shall live by faith. When someone is saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ, they experience God's power in the only way God's power can be pointed at someone to save, right? That's reason number one. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's God's power for salvation. Whose power for salvation? God's power. When someone is saved, 100% of the power involved in saving that person was God's. 0% of that power was mine or was yours or was any other person's. Our power plays a 0% role in saving us. But God's power to save people only becomes effective for those who believe in what he did with Jesus on the cross. Faith like opens the circuit for God's power. When God, when someone hears the gospel, something clicks. God begins to do a work in that person's heart and they believe the gospel, it's like the switch is thrown open, and that switch is faith, and through that faith, the power of God flows into that person's life in a way where they are saved and not condemned, and that is the only requirement for our salvation. Faith alone, sola fide, again, the Reformation. 
When Paul says in verse, in verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, that's his way of saying from beginning to end. It was faith at the beginning, it will be faith at the end that saves a person. At the beginning, someone understands the gospel, that switch is thrown open, they are justified before God, they are 100% accepted by God for all time because they look like they bear the righteousness of Jesus Christ. They do bear the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It can't be improved upon. So faith sort of throws the switch open and I'm justified by faith. At the end of my life, when I check out of this world and my spirit separates from my body, I will be glorified. Do you know why I will be glorified? Simply because I believed on Jesus Christ during my earthly life. I was justified by faith. I will be glorified by faith. And in between those two times, as I grow to be more and more like Jesus Christ, I will grow because I believe I am saved. I am close to God. I don't have to live in shame of my sin, being scared that God's going to whack me every time I mess up because I'm completely accepted by Jesus Christ. And then my habits change and I grow and I become more like Jesus. And that is faith, 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 faith. Paul quotes the prophet Habakkuk at the end, just to show, like he said a week or two ago that we studied, the gospel Paul proclaimed wasn't some brand new thing these Christians cooked up. God's been promising it for a long time. That was an Old Testament quote, Habakkuk, who said the people are going to live by faith. People are going to be righteous because of their faith. Those who have uh, those who have the righteousness of Christ are going to live by faith. Faith is the only part we play in the gospel. Now, I do, before we close, feel like I need to say, we're not justified by God simply by understanding the plan of salvation as outlined in the Bible. How, do, how can I be so sure of that? I, I, don't, I can't say any names off the top of my head, but I could find, I'm sure, some atheist, ethics, philosophy professors. If you ask them, how do Christians believe they are saved? I think they could tell, right? I think they could tell you what Christians believe. I think they understand what the gospel is. But that's not a saving faith. Saving faith involves a trust, a trust that what he did is my only hope, and it is enough. I believe I'll stand before God, and I'll be declared not guilty. I'll be declared perfect and righteous because of what Jesus did for me. It's putting my trust in what he did is enough. I often I often say we not only as Christians, are we supposed to repent of our sin? Absolutely. But before we get that far, we'd better repent of our righteousness. What I mean by that is there's so many people that believe I'm going to be okay by God because, and they will list some things that are good things. I'm okay before God because I was baptized, because I took communion, because I took the Eucharist, because I confessed my sins, because I helped little old ladies across the street, 
because I did a public service project when I was in school, whatever. The gospel requires we repent and turn our backs on the good things we think make us okay with God. We have to believe in what Jesus did. By faith alone. Um, that's my role in the gospel. Someone asked an old preacher one time. I tried to find the source of this. It's a famous preacher, but I can't remember who he is. Some, they asked him, what was your role in your salvation? He said, that's easy. I sinned. That's my part. Like Jonathan Edwards, the old Puritan uh, preacher, wrote this. You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Way to go. That's one reason why Paul's not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul said. It's the only way God can point his power at you in a way where you are saved, you are redeemed, and not condemned. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's open to everyone. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's how God shows how good he is. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because the only requirement for us to be justified eternally is to believe in what he already did. Why would I be ashamed of that? Now, will there be more things we're supposed to do as we walk with him? Absolutely. Paul will get to that. It's called chapter 12. <laughs> We're a long ways from there. But hang on, we'll get there. I'm praying for us. I already told you. I'm praying that, that God would bring about the obedience that comes from faith for us as we go through a madness one, that we, you and me both, that we all as a group, we would be less and less ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for all those who believe. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you so much for sending your son, Jesus. It was the righteous requirement that our sins be punished. You had to choose to either punish us or punish your righteous son. And you chose him instead of us. You put our sin in his body on the tree. You made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. We thank you, God, for those of us who understand and believe and have our trust in that gospel. We praise you and worship you, and I pray that you would continue to bring about your righteousness in our hearts and lives. And God, for those of us who maybe are just starting to hear that like Martin Luther did in the 1500s, and something is clicking and something is changing, God, I pray you would throw open that switch of faith and cause someone here this morning to believe, even for the first time, that your power could be pointed at them in a way that would save them and change them and glorify you. And I pray you would make us all a testimony for what you do by your grace through the faith of those who would trust in Christ Jesus and make us a people who are not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for all those who believe, for the Jew first and then the Greek and then us barbarians way out here in southwest Nebraska. We love you, God. 
glorify yourself in us in Jesus' name. Amen. You stand and finish with us.